you should all have a, a set of notes uh, in your lap or in your on the chair next to you. If you could get that and find maybe two other people and take a grand total of five minutes. It's just like the timing downstairs. There's going to be cheering happening when your five minutes are up. Um, look at those five questions with two other people. Take one minute, and I'm not exaggerating with brevity. Take one minute on each question with your two partners and come up with an answer to each of the five, which means you have a total of five minutes starting now. Okay, which group wants to take a shot? Give me a one-sentence answer for the first question. Give me in a sentence, one sentence, why God made the world. Anybody want to give it a try? How about our, our bright group on the front row here? We've done first. Brad Walker team. The world is a place where human beings and God can live in fellowship. Well, that's a good one. Good one. Okay. I like that. I would like to hear the word glory in there somewhere because he made it for his glory, but amen. That's, that's good. good. Okay, good stuff. And it was for his glory. It was for his glory. He just had a revelation all of a sudden. Second question Why did God create human beings? Somebody. Somebody be bold. Just raise your hand. Why did God create people? People who could choose to reproduce. Okay, they, they have free will. They are choice makers. You know, trees and, and animals don't make choices like people do. That's part of it. Good. Yeah, Lucy? Uh, for relationship and to reflect His image. Yes. Okay, for relationship and to reflect His image, in a sense to be His image. Uh, a key part of that part of the biblical story is that they would rule in His name. Remember in chapter, let them rule. They're going to be His image. Third question, what went wrong? One sentence. Okay, rebellion, anybody else? What went wrong? Or why is eating that fruit such a big deal? Yeah, Gord? Okay, it's disobedience. It's tied up with what your life source is going to be, isn't it? Yeah. I'm sorry, did you want to put in something? I said broke faith, lack of trust, that's okay. Okay, yeah, it's unbelief. When they take from the tree of knowledge, it's they don't trust God to go His way and, uh, and make Him our life source, God Himself through that tree. Now, the world is clearly off track after Genesis 3. It's, some have used the image of a train wreck. Uh, now, so you have people supposed to represent God in his world, and they are cut off from him, and there's moral corruptions got in very vividly in the first post-Eden chapter in the Bible. We've got the world's first murder. So we're not off to a very good start, are we, in terms of human history? So why hasn't it gone completely to pieces. Why isn't everybody an axe murderer? Why, you know, why isn't there total chaos all the time? Anybody want to have a shot at that? God's mercy. Okay, there's mercy. Uh, in some way, God is still at work in His world, is He not? Okay, Genesis four again. God gives Eve Seth. Why did He give her Seth? to heal the part, the grief that she had by losing Cain. And this is outside the garden. He's still giving families children in part as a sign of mercy. God is at work. And at the end of Genesis 4, I love it, you've got histories. Not At the beginning of 4, you've got the first murder. <laughs> at the beginning of chapter 4, the world's first prayer movement. 4, I think 25, 26. In those days, men began to call on the name of the Lord. I love that. Okay, God is, has not given up in his world. Uh, number five, um, let's, let's get three answers randomly from around the room. 
let's get four answers. Two ways that we can be a blessing. That God's people, God told Abraham, you and your descendants will be a blessing. Let's get four examples real quick. Fire them off. Anything at all. Serve others. I'm sorry, Phil. Serve. Just as servants. Serving people around. That's excellent. Another one. How can we be a blessing? Ministers of reconciliation. Okay, ministers of reconciliation. Really good. Lots of biblical precedent for that. Another one. Wisdom. Okay, giving wisdom. Solomon teaching the kings of the earth. Yep, I like that. One more. Protect the powerless. Protecting? The powerless. Oh, the powerless. The weak, etc. All right. And of course, intermingled with all that, obviously, I know all of you believe this already, preaching the gospel. Okay. (laughs) Praise the Lord. Let's make our way through some of the points. The only problem with getting a Bible teacher in here to do this session is you get footnoted and noted to death. So there's way more detail here than we'll even get close to. I'm just going to hit some of the high points. Hopefully we can make uh, some time for chatting. Uh, The the little catches, we're supposed to wrap up by 22. So um, we'll make our way through. The top of page 2. The thing I want us to carry away is the little phrase, this is how we see the world. This is how we see the world because God in the Word has given us a world view, a way I can look at the world around me and I see how that fits. There is construction going on in the property next door. There are churches, this one and others nearby, that preach the gospel of eternal salvation. Both construction in the wider common community and then specific people preaching the gospel. They're both part of God's big picture. How does it all fit together? Now, let's look. Um, in Psalm 19.1, the whole cosmos, humanity, animal life, plants and trees, and the stars, that's the cosmos, is a witness it declares, Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare. They say something. They're a witness. They declare the glory of God. Psalm 104, alongside the cosmos being a witness, the cosmos is a pageant. And that psalm, it's one of my favorite psalms. You go through and it's like there's a parade that the psalmist is unfolding in front of you as the reader of everything. It's a parade to the glory of God. Trees, rivers, animal life, mountains, stars. It's like a parade. You see, it's like a pageant testifying to the glory of God. And interestingly, right smack in the middle or maybe a little bit past the center point of the psalm, we read about people people getting up in the morning going to work, and then coming home at the end of the day. In other words, daily vocation. That's part of God's glory in His world. There's an interesting paradigm we see because the world, it's a witness, it's a pageant. Oh, it's a choir. I missed number C there. The cosmos is a choir. We give you the scriptures there in letter C about the universe singing. I just, just think about that. It's a glorious concept. Very, very biblical. The cosmos is a choir. D, the cosmos is a paradigm. You get in that when you make your way through the first, the six day account in chapter one of Genesis, you see God likes opposites. He likes complementary pairs. So a pair, not pairs like the fruit, but P-A-I-R-S. Um, he makes complementary pairs. Heaven, earth. The waters above 
and then the waters below. Whatever you do with that, that's an interesting question. But there are waters above and there are waters below. There is day, there is night. You see what God, God is doing? Complementary pairings. There is day and night. There is land and sea. Now, when you get to the end of day five, those are the pairings you have in front of us. When we get to day six, we get the sort of the climactic pairing of opposites, man and woman, male and female. So as you all know, we're in a day today where the idea of gender is under a lot of debate. And if we're going to take Genesis 1 as our cue, gender pairing is not an incidental thing. It's not accidental. It's part of the paradigm of how God made the world. But most importantly of all, don't forget the very first point, the cosmos is a witness and it declares God's glory. Second point, this is how we see the world. I want you to take that little phrase away today. This is how we see the world. God reigns the world through his image bearers. The word image in Genesis 1, let us make man in our image, essentially means reflection. Okay, you see your reflection in the mirror. That's, that's your image. And these creatures are unique in God's created order that only the man and the woman are declared by God to be his reflection. All things glorify God, but humans glorify him in a very unique way by reflecting him. Well, okay, at a practical level, how do they reflect God? And the answer is very simple in 126. They reflect God who is the ruler of all things. Think of the word ruler with a capital uppercase R. These reflections of God in his world, called the man and the woman, they reflect the ruler by ruling. Let them rule. Let them rule. Now, what, is that, that, what does that then look like? Okay, ruling, what does that look like? We have to keep follow the text very closely. In Genesis 2, verse 8, so far we've been in chapter 1. Okay, move over to chapter 2, and we find out that, that, that uh, God is the world's first gardener. He plants a garden. My wife enjoys planting gardens, and she's vastly better at it than I am. She doesn't always even let me help. That's how much better she is at gardening than I am. And the first gardener in history is God himself. The Lord, to Genesis 2.8, he planted a garden in the east. Now, let that idea linger in your mind. He's the gardener. He creates it. He leads Adam into this amazing place. I wonder what Adam ever thought when he saw it. But then what's God do? What does God do in chapter 2, verse 15? The garden he created, he appoints man to look after it. Till it, or work it, and keep it. Genesis 2.15 God makes, mankind maintains. God makes, mankind maintains. Second visit to one of my favorite psalms, as you all know now, is Psalm 104. It's the pageant psalm. And in the middle of the pageant, we're verse 23, you see man gets up in the morning, goes out to his work, does whatever he does, comes home at the end of the day, and goes to bed. And that daily vocation, faithful 
doing what you need to do, according to that psalm, it's an integral part of God ruling His world. Daily vocation on the part of faithful humans. Let me read you this little clip from um, George Veith. Well, you know what? I'll let you do that. It's at the bottom of page 2. It talks about when you thank God for your daily bread and sit down to breakfast... We don't always think about it, but for most of us, most of the time, that breakfast didn't drop out of the sky like the manna in the wilderness. Okay, It came from Safeway. And Safeway got it from a wholesale company. The wholesale company got it from the farmers. You see, there's this huge, long process. But the Scriptures establish God behind that whole process. He's orchestrating the whole thing because God makes, mankind maintains. That needs to be part of our worldview. Okay, really good. You're being really patient and staying with us. That's why your job matters to God. Your job matters to God. If you're in a house group and there's somebody in your group and shows up really discouraged one night and say, I'm really frustrated. I need you guys to pray for me. Um, I'm a manager at a such and such store and the, the store is really going down the tubes. We're not making money. There's bad morale among the staff. Um, can I believe God? I mean, the, the store is just a store. It's not a Christian ministry. And maybe the guy asks you, can I believe God that he would care about my store? Mm. I believe we can say yes. Mm. And we can say, well, I'd love to pray for your store. And it's like Joseph in Egypt, and I think it's Genesis 34, 35. Remember after he's abducted and yeah. he's down there and he works for Potiphar, whose wife clearly had some issues, as you know, that little story. But what does God do for Potiphar? He blesses his whole household. And then this text gives us the reason because Joseph was there. And he happens to be the great-grandson of somebody named, starts with an A, through whom God promised I'll bless all the nations of the earth. Okay, So if God can bless Potiphar's cattle in his fields, yada, 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 he can bless the Safeway that you're the assistant manager to. You see the point? Okay, God wants, God does care about the wider world. Number four. This is how we see... Where am I here? Number three. Number three. Oh, yeah. Why we no longer live in the garden and how God meets us outside of it. We've touched this a little bit already. Drop down to verse to letter C. Genesis 3.24 is the Bible's first exile. There's a fair bit in the Bible about exile, notably to Babylon in, in 2 Kings. But there's one that's a precursor of that when there's only, the world population, human population, is a grand total of two, and they're already getting exiled. Okay? <laughs> the human race has not had a sterling history. So they get banned. Adam and, and his wife are banned. But then we come, that's Genesis 3. Genesis 4, as we noted, they don't get off to a very good start. Not only are they banned, but there's strife between their two sons. We have in Genesis 4, 8, the, the history's first murder. But then at the end of the chapter, two things happen. They're very precious. Something stirs up the world's first prayer meeting. What an amazing thought. In Genesis 4, 25. And in that same verse, God restores to Eve, in a sense, the son she lost. What is the point here? Outside the garden, God meets us. How many here feel like you are still living in the Garden of Eden right now? If you feel you are, you'd better pray for me because I'm not. Okay? Well, praise the Lord, according to the, the Bible, 
the creator of the Garden of Eden, the original gardener with a capital G, will meet his rebellious rulers in their exile outside the garden. He meets us. He refuses to give up on his world. Many of you have either attended or know about Providence Seminary. I was there a hundred years ago, I think. And <laughs> Gus, do you, any of you know Gus Conkle or know of him? He's yeah. one of the best teachers yeah. down there. He's retired now. But I remember him booming. He had a very loud, booming lecture voice. And probably not every week or every lecture, but near that, I remember him saying, God refuses to give up on his world. That was his passion, is that idea. And that's very biblical. And we see that in God meeting people outside the garden in their exile. Number four, this is how we see the world. Why everything hasn't completely gone to pieces. Why aren't we all axe murderers? Why isn't the world in total chaos? This morning, I drove over here and I didn't get mugged once. I didn't get somebody crash into my car. Nobody tried to you know, hijack my car or anything like that. Because there is a measure of order. It's not because people in general are sanctified, but God's grace is on His messed up world to sustain it and keep it moving. Now note, God's real answer for salvation in the world will come, it will begin with Abraham. That's the beginning of the plan of salvation. It begins with Abraham and it climaxes with Jesus. But before, long before Abraham, God makes another covenant. Anybody want to tell me with whom he makes it? Noah. Starts with an N. Yep, bullseye. He makes the Noah covenant. And you'll see there it's number four in the letter C. It's a stability covenant. Stability for an unstable world. Um, I like the Noah story so much. It's my favorite Old Testament story that I put his name in there twice. God's promises to Noah to Noah. It almost sounds like a song, to Noah to Noah. um, Just cross out. It's just a typo. He makes these promises to Noah. And if you look at them and condense them down, they are promises of stability. He doesn't let chaos just take over. I didn't my car I didn't get carjacked on the way here this morning. I'm not got by God's mercy an axe murderer. God is restraining evil in his world. And part of that comes under the Noah covenant. One example is God preserves, despite this cataclysmic thing of the whole world being flooded, despite that he preserves post flood what we'd call natural order. And that's why it's in um, uh, 822, Genesis 822, summer, winter, seed time, harvest. I think that's how it phrases out. The regularity of the s- cycle of seasons. It's a sign of the faithfulness of God. My wife's father, before he went to be with the Lord, was a farmer, farmer for many years. He never got rich, I'll just put it that way, in farming, but they always had enough to eat. He didn't know exactly if they'd have the proper amount of rainfall each season. That was always something they had to keep praying about. But you know what? There always was summer. There always was winter. There was always seed time. There was always harvest. Why is that? 
Why hasn't even the cycle of the seasons gone crazy? Because God promised Noah it wouldn't go crazy. It's the faithfulness of God to keep the world from going completely to pieces. And some scholars, and I think I would agree with this view, would say that the regularity of natural order, like the seasons, can we can legitimately infer from that that all natural order is preserved by God. So why can astronomers get out their computers and their telescopes and know where exactly the planet Mars is going to be six weeks from now? They can put it down to an inch, okay? Because there's a stability in the cosmic order. And that's the faithfulness of God. It's a precious thing. Um, When I was in high school, even before I got saved, I kind of had the impression that algebra was a work of the devil. (laughs) Maybe some of you can relate to that. But you know what? It's a precious thing when you really get a hold of it. And and it's the, the rules of algebra that you learn today you open up your algebra book tomorrow and they'll still be the same. It'll still work because God has built faithfulness and consistency. And Do you see where I'm going? It's the hand of God. It's the faithfulness of God. Natural order. Now, on the back of this pledge that the world will not completely go to pieces, there is social order. So there are penalties. Genesis 9, verse 6. If anyone sheds the blood of man... By the hand of man shall his blood be shed. It's a sobering statement. It's the basis, I would argue, of civil government in the Bible that goes right through the Bible, not least um, Romans 13, you know, obey the civil authorities and so forth because God has put them in place. Now, we all recognize police forces and police departments are not perfect. You do read in the paper about some policeman taking a bribe. We know that that corruption is there. But providentially in the big picture we know that those things are part of the mercy of God. Mm. Maybe there would be a lot more axe murderers if they didn't know, well I better not kill that my next door neighbor because the police might get me. There's, there's an order, a restraint mm. on evil. Lots more could be said about the Noah covenant. Mm. I'd encourage you to get a hold of commentary. It's a fascinating thing. Two more points. This is how we see the world. Abraham and God's twofold plan to bless the nations. Bottom of page three. Abraham and God's twofold plan to bless the nations. Post flood, to go post flood once more, we see that weird story in Genesis 9. The one who, in a sense, was almost like a temporary provisional savior of the world, Noah, by preserving humans, human life in this ark. What's he do and do? He goes out and gets plastered. In chapter 9, you see him sprawled out stark naked in his tent, drunk out of his head. Why is that rather yucky story there? Mommy, why is that in the Bible? Well, it's there for a reason, to show us that even with Noah, the sin virus is not yet cured. You with me? But God's got an answer for that coming, and that's going to begin in Father Abraham. Let's turn over to the, the back and I'll show you this chart. The Abrahamic promise is for all the nations. That, that, that comes out over and over again in the Abraham stories in the latter part of the book of Genesis. It's a twofold thing. It's for all the nations and it's twofold. And it's both temporal, as you'll see on the chart, in the sense of just for this 
life situation here on earth now. But then parallel with that, there are uh, eternal blessings that come of primarily through having a saving knowledge of Abraham's God. That's just to give a couple examples in each of these columns, and they bear lots more discussion and study. In the temporal blessing side, Genesis 41:57, first example we give you, Joseph, of course, Father Abraham's great-grandson, only, this is only four generations down the road after Abraham, he's instrumental in saving probably thousands of people, mainly Egyptians, from starvation. Didn't you know that story? Remember, he was abducted, came into prominence in Egypt, and through his wisdom that he got from God, he comes up with a means of preparing for the famine and said, we're told in, in Genesis 41, that people from all the earth came to Joseph for food. I would call that a blessing. Yeah. If you, you and your kids haven't eaten in four days, and somebody says, hey, so there's this guy named Joseph, and he's a descendant from some people called Israel and Abraham and all of that, and he's got food stashed up, and you can go to him and they have food there. If it was you and your kids, especially your kids, kids haven't eaten in three days, you'd say, that's a blessing. Wow. Is he with me? Okay. It's the temporal blessing under the promise to Father Abraham. And note this, it's for all the nations. This is not the same as preaching the gospel, but it's very much part of God's plan. Okay, we can't diminish it. So Psalm 105, the same Joseph, we read about him teaching wisdom to the elders of, of, of Egypt. God's investing in, in Egyptian culture, putting Joseph in there because he was wiser than their elders, and he teaches them wisdom. A parallel with that is Solomon. Solomon teaches wisdom to the kings of the nations. Okay, can we get to... The rest of the examples that go down that column are essentially all the same idea. The eternal blessing side, of course more important or important at a different level is eternal blessing. Because we observed <laughs> prior to Abraham, the sin virus did not have a cure. So recall drunken Noah. In Genesis 17.7, one of my favorite verses, um, it says, God says um, to Abraham, I will be God to you. In a lot of English Bibles, it's translated, I will be your God, which is an okay translation, but the word your is not there in the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, it says, I will be God to you. It sort of puts a little different spin. So everything that's involved in God being God, it's like God saying to Brad, all of this, Brad, I'm going to be all of this to you. That's a promise, isn't it? Okay, Genesis 17 says, I will be God to you. And then the best part of the verse is what comes right after that. And to your descendants after you. Do you see the magnitude of that promise? Mm. I will be God to you and to your descendants. And if you want to jot it in the margins, I forget if it's in there already, but Galatians 3 verse 29. Galatians 3 verse 29. Because through Jesus, even if you're a Gentile and don't have one drop of Jewish blood, Paul says in Galatians 3.29, you are Abraham's offspring through Jesus. So the 17.7 promise, I will be God to you. Uh, and who else? And to all your descendants after you, including Gentiles who trust in Christ. Another eternal blessing, it's not quite the, exactly the same as eternal salvation. Uh, oh, by the way, let me back up a teeny bit. Needless to say, I hope, 
the saving covenant God inaugurates through Abraham is fulfilled in Jesus. That's one of St. Paul's main doctrines in his letters, especially Galatians. It got started with Abraham, but it it lands, it comes down for the destination is Jesus and eternal salvation. On the way, God introduces for the sake of Israel and the nations moral norms, moral norms that can bring life. The way that... God te- the commandments God gives Moses at Sinai, they have life in them. Ruth 1.16, another way that the eternal blessings promised to Abraham come out um, in, the, in the form of eternal blessing. Ruth 1.16, we all know that story, it's a great part of the Old Testament. We see there Gentiles being drawn to Israel's God. And being drawn right into the community. Okay, you see how that works. So it's for Israel, but the door is always open for God that people will draw in. And we see that precious scene. Ruth, of course, has met Naomi. They both lose their husbands. Naomi loses her sons. Ruth and her sister lose their... their uh, Ruth loses her husband, and so does Naomi does, and Ruth and Orpah. Well, they all lose their husbands. Um Naomi says, Fui on Moab, I'm going back to Bethlehem. And Ruth says, I want to come with you. Initially, Naomi says, please, please don't do that. And Ruth physically clings to her. It says it's in, in, in 116, she physically clings. And that's a sign both of Ru- the, the legitimacy of Ruth's hunger for the true God, but also of the door being opened. Do you see the point we're making? Is the covenant with Israel? Yes. But what about others that want to come in and that they're trusting? This God, Abraham's God, Ruth's God, that's the real God. I want him. The door is open. So she's drawn in. And guess who, speaking of great-grandsons, who is her great-grandson later? She's a Moabite. And she has a great-grandson whose name is... Starts with a D. (laughs) David. Okay, She's the great-grandmother. I think that's the right number of generations with Israel's greatest king. And if you go to the book of Matthew, she's also there in that great genealogy in Matthew 1. She's the great, 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 great grandma of King Jesus. So talk about getting drawn into the process. One more, and then we're going to get to the end times, um, the final part of the worldview. In 1 Kings 8, this is when Solomon is dedicating... Uh, the newly built temple on Mount Zion. They've been working on it for years. Now it's finished. They have a big ceremony with worship and sacrifices. <clears throat> and I don't have the quotation here, but if you read in the middle of uh, 1 Kings 8, Solomon is praying to God, to Yahweh, Israel's God, when a Gentile comes to this house that we have built, and he prays to you, hear his prayer. Isn't that an amazing thing for an Israelite king? He's saying, they're going to come, they're going to hear about you. But when they come and they pray, they come to this, listen, hear that prayer and answer that prayer that they may know that you are the true God of all the earth. That temple was an evangelistic ministry. We don't usually think of it, but I think that's how Solomon saw it, that the nations would commit. This is how we see the world. Point six. We can smile at the future. I like that. Over my life, I've had battles at times with depression. And when I find that Scripture promises we can smile at the future, I think, yes, sir. I like that. Here's why we say that. This 
it's the biggest drama that's ever been written and it has a good ending. The good guys win. Good wins. Hope wins. One of the ways we see this is that in the end, God will restore everything. And part of the way we see that is in Revelation 21, 1 and 2. It's one of John's final revelations in all those visions God gives him in, in the book of Revelation. He sees the new creation coming to birth. He says, I see, or I then I saw, then I saw a new heaven. Then tell me the second part of the phrase. And a new, a new earth. That means, I would vigorously argue, a new physical earth. God's going to renew it. He's not going to throw the physical world in the bin and just we're, we're going to float up as disembodied spirits into heaven forever. That is not a biblical paradigm. It's new heaven, new earth. That's why 1 Corinthians 15 is so important because we're all going to be raised from the dead. We're going to have imperishable bodies. I have a fantasy. I am five feet four inches tall. I've a few times... Partly seriously, Lord, when you give me my new body, can I be 6'2 or, or something like that? Now, however tall I'm going to be, I don't know. But that body will be imperishable. Amen. It'll, that means physical. We're going to eat and drink. That's why Christ says, I'm not going to drink wine again until I eat, drink it with you anew in the kingdom. Well, if we're going to be drinking wine, we must be physical people. You see the logic behind that. It's going to be a newly reconstituted, recreated world. Renewed bodies in a renewed world. We're going to see Eden replanted. Who was the first gardener? God. And in the middle of that great city that descends out of the sky, John says, I started looking around through my video camera. It's hooked up to a... There's the little things that fly around him. Drone. Drone, yeah. He's got a drone hovering around the city. He says, ah! In the middle of the city is a garden. Whoa! And in the middle of that garden, there's a river, just like Garden of Eden, remember? And in the middle of the, or not in the middle of the river, but on both sides of the river, try and figure that one out. This tree is on both sides of the river. And why is the tree there? This is why nations, the idea of nations, is very important in the Bible. I didn't emphasize that. I was going to bring it in earlier, but read the notes. Nations are a big piece of God's plan. The, tr- the tree is there because it produces, as most trees do, leaves. And the leaves of that tree are for the healing of the, the nations. Nations, in some form, the nations are going to get healed. Do you believe that? Amen. And that everything that was on place in Genesis 1 is going to be back in place, but better, at the end of Revelation That's why we can smile at the future and that is how we look at the world and that's an introduction to Christian worldview. God bless you.